Hi, this is James Barris. I hope you find this talk supports you in your practice. If you'd like to support my teaching, you can use the donate button underneath my picture on Dharma Seed to do that. Your support is greatly appreciated. <laughs> okay. All here, all the wall space accounted for. <clears throat> well, here we are. <clears throat> Just about 24 hours later, <clears throat> you made it through the first day. <clears throat> first day is not usually so much fun. Um, let me just do a, a quick check. How many people were sleepy today? Whoa, look at that. <laughs> uh, the company. How many people were restless at times? Okay. Uh, anybody have aches in the body? Uh-huh. And how about busy mind? <laughs> You're all doing great. Right on schedule. Because <clears throat> that's what the first day of settling in is about. If you're new to this, you might think, or maybe if you're not even new to this, have the idea, oh, what was I thinking uh, when I signed up for this? <laughs> or what's the point? Um, this is good for me? Okay. Uh, but if you've done this a number of times, then you know that this is just part of the settling in process. I like to think of it uh, like a detox. You're going through a detox uh, from stimulation as much as anything. Slowing down. Um, it was really inspiring to see how many people uh, let go of their phones this morning. Uh, but you're not taking in a whole lot of input as we usually do and we're usually running on that input you come here oh wow <laughs> uh, hmm, sauna's heating up isn't it <laughs> you come here to a new environment um, and um, it takes some adjustments because not running on that energy uh, at first your own energy is low and when it's low you're a bit more cranky and not in your brightest mode and uh, also when you happen to be awake what you're noticing is all of this stuff going through your mind well that's not very a very good show so we have a way of checking out in that as well and then you're being told okay now sit still <clears throat> Isn't that just what you like to hear when you were young? Now sit still. In I was a school teacher for many years in, in, in New York City, and we had stationary desks. They were bolted down to the floor. I don't know how those kids sat still, sat in their unmovable desks. Um, I let them chew gum a lot. That was my... Said, as long as I don't see you chewing... I, I can't, I don't know if it's against the rules, but it's hard to sit still. You sit still, now you walk a certain way, very mindfully, now eat your food and actually taste it, and now you're sleeping in a bed that you're not used to, and you look at that schedule and it's sitting, walking, sitting, walking, uh, where's the fun? Um, I did tell you you could swim, so that was a little offering just for uh, to 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 brighten you up. But these first few days, uh, for anyone, if you've been doing it, no matter how many years, um, are um, it takes some getting used to. So I'm glad that you're still here, and uh, know that there's um, a value to doing this. Uh, tonight I wanted to uh, talk, give a talk on one of the classic lists, as I think Jane said, there, there's lots of lists in this teaching, uh, and there's uh, some really good ones that give a sense of how this all works, and 
one particularly that um, I often start um, a retreat with is is a list that explains the process that you're going through, and that is the list of the the five spiritual faculties. Mm-hmm. How many people are familiar with that list? Okay, just a handful. Oh, good. Let me sock it to you. <laughs> So the the five faculties are faith, effort or energy, mindfulness, concentration, and wisdom. And this list can be understood in a couple of different ways. One way is, um, as with many of the lists, it's a description of balancing our practice. Mindfulness is always in the middle, in the center, if there's a balancing list. And then there are two, um, two ends of each of the, uh, the, um, the other four where, balance, where factors are balanced. And so Faith needs to be balanced with wisdom. If there's a lot of faith, but not a whole lot of wisdom, it can easily become blind faith. If there's wisdom, that is the investigation to understand how things work, but without a lot of faith, and I'll explain just what that word faith means in a moment, a heart quality, if it's just a, a dry scientific investigation without the moistness of that heart quality, it can be very dry and lead to doubt, the doubting mind, or skepticism, and, or a very dry practice. So those two are in balance. And then energy and concentration, in a number of lists, they appear uh, together and they also need to be brought into balance. If there's too much energy and not enough concentration that is a kind of stilling of, of the whole system, then we can become very agitated. If there's too much concentration, that is a lot of stillness without a lot of, without much bright energy, then, uh, then that can lead to what's called sinking mind, where you're, you're really um, just uh, dozing off and drifting off pleasantly at times, but you're not really here. So one way to look at this list is that they balance energy and concentration and wisdom and faith and they're um, brought into balance with mindfulness. Another way to understand this list is a more linear progression, although it's not as neat as you do this and then you go to this and then you go to this, but it's one generally begets another, and uh, hopefully as I explain it, you can understand what you're doing here and how this practice works. Mm. So, first faculty, faith, which also um, is translated as trust, confidence, Conviction, all of those are used for the Pali word sadha, S-A-D-D-H-A, sadha, which means to put one's heart in something, a quality of heartfulness. (coughs) Sometimes the word faith can trigger some uh, people, if you've, uh, whatever your um, uh, religious tradition growing up, 
sometimes faith can be such a beautiful word, inspiring word, and for others it's like, whoa, I don't know, am I supposed to be believing in something that I don't quite, can't quite get to? But if you think about it as trust or some, some sense that there's, um, there's a value to what you're doing, uh, then you've got juice to practice. And uh, it start, there are different levels of this sadha, or trust, or faith, uh, that most people experience. The first one being called bright faith. Bright faith, where you're um, inspired by somebody or something that gets you intrigued and wanting to explore for yourself. Maybe you heard a talk by some teacher, or maybe you read a book that really touched you, or uh, maybe you um, uh, just heard from a friend, hey, this is really making a difference in my life. And it sparks something in you that says, I want to check this out. I want to check this out for myself. That's the initial kind of inspiration that sometimes can become very bright and inspired. Um, for myself, as I often mention, when I first got into, into this uh, practice, it was in 1974, and I had read uh, a book that perhaps some of you are familiar with uh, called Be Here Now by Ram Dass. Anybody familiar with that book? A few? Okay. And people in my generation, uh, this came out like in 1970 or so, 71, uh, people who'd gone through the 60s, as I had, uh, read this book about um, a, uh, a Harvard professor who got into uh, uh, psychedelics with Timothy Leary and uh, was kicked out of Harvard and then he went through consciousness expanding uh, for a while, but then he went to India and met his guru uh, named Neem Karoli Baba, uh, also known as Maharaji, who showed him, you don't have to take drugs to, to get to the high that you're looking for. There's another way. And he was transformed and he wrote this book and it touched a whole generation. Uh, many Dharma teachers in, in my generation were very moved by that book. And Ram Das, who is a teacher for both Jane and me, has been for all of these years for me, um, is a kind of like grandfather of, of, um, of Vipassana, of our insight community. Um, very close with Joseph and Jack and um, uh, Jack Cornfield and Joseph Goldstein and uh, a big influence on me. Anyway, I uh, I went to um, uh, to Naropa Institute uh, the first summer in Boulder, Colorado. It's now a university. It's a Buddhist university that our son has graduated from, but in those days it was like a spiritual summer camp. Um, and it was the first year, and Trungpa Rinpoche, this great Tibetan master, was there, and Ramdas was there. And I'd been carrying around this book like a Bible for about three years, and I finally got to meet Ramdas. And uh, and he and I asked him about meditation. I'd been doing transcendental meditation (TM) for uh, a few years, uh, which was very helpful. I got into it because. Uh, if it was good enough for John Lennon, it was good enough for me, and I <laughs> went for TM. Uh, but I was looking for for more, and I asked uh, I asked Ramdas, "What should I do about meditation?" And he said, "Go check this guy Goldstein out. He's he's pretty good." And I sat in that first class in that summer, and I heard Joseph share the Dharma, and first 10 minutes it was like so this is the great guru he didn't seem he didn't have long flowing hair or dressed up very regally he sounded like he was from new york like i was and just a couple of years older and this is the great guru 
But then after about 10 minutes, I just listened to what he was saying and how he was saying it, and something touched me deeply. And he was saying, it's possible to not be run by your neurotic thoughts. I never entertained that as a possibility before. But the way he was saying it, he said, it's really possible to find peace inside. And I said, I'm going for it. Turning point moment in my life. There was no turning back. I had tried everything else or that I had been exposed to and had a lot of suffering in my heart. Uh, my life looked like it was pretty good from the outside, but inside there was lots of insecurity, lots of pain, lots of confusion, uh, lots of self-judgment. And he was saying, peace is possible. I got very bright faith. And I did a lot of practice those first, well, for the next 10 years. This is it. And I know some people here are in that process where you found something very deep that's touched you and you're in the middle of that, that process. Uh, so that's bright faith where you've been inspired. Can you remember? For I'll ask all of us just to go back for a moment and maybe this is your first retreat so it's you're just kind of checking things out but if you've been doing this for a while or if there's been something in your life that really touched you and said in your own way I'm going for it just remember that for a moment This is bright faith. And it's kind of mysterious how that happens, how we're just in the right place at the right time and hear the right person or meet the right friend. And our whole life can all of a sudden shift and you know you're facing in the direction that's going to bring about true peace. <clears throat> And that gets you started on this path. <clears throat> when I, there is a number of different other things. When I read Be Here Now, that was another bright faith. Um, when I heard the Buddha's words, Jane mentioned them uh, last night, if it were not possible to free the mind of greed, hatred, and delusion, I would not tell you to do so. But it is possible and this is why I teach. That's a powerful statement, especially if you, you really believe that the Buddha knew what he was talking about and, uh, and had attained the highest kind of freedom. So that's what gets us on the uh, beginning on this path. But then you have to actually do it. That just ignites the, uh, the flame. And then it's work. It's not enough to say, oh, cool, that was inspiring. <laughs> Unfortunately, there's more to be done after that. Then you've got to do it for yourself. And it takes courage. It takes courage to take a look at everything inside. It takes courage to sit with the sleepiness and the boredom and, the, and all the, the, the habits and patterns that you see inside and to open up and, and be willing to, um, to be with your fears and your wants and your pettiness and your loneliness and sadness and all of that. And the good news, as I was saying last night, is that the more and more you find that you have the tools and capacity to do that, you keep on seeing, wow, there's some really good stuff in here that's able to be with all of this. Wow, there's a whole lot of courage and strength 
and love and wisdom and then rather than it just being a good inspiring idea it slowly becomes what's called verified faith where you have seen for yourself what these teachings are about you've seen for yourself yeah this isn't just a a nice thing that I'm reading in a book you see for yourself oh this stuff really works I'm getting in touch with something that um, that I know is true mm. and sometimes the understandings the verified understandings sneak up on you where you don't even realize you're learning but in retrospect you learn you know so many times people go through a retreat and they're saying wow this is this is challenging and then afterwards wow that was amazing when's the next one <laughs> it's often how it works you kind of you remember at the very end the sweet, the, that sweet moment, oh, I want some more. Oh, mm. Then you have to go through the beginning, the, the, the second retreat. Oh, yeah. But generally, you pick up where you, where you left off, and you're on this incredible journey. I remember on, on my second retreat, um, I was filled with doubt. I was sitting, I, I couldn't sit, my body was hurting, my mind was everywhere, and I, I didn't see what the point was. I tried to do walking meditation. It was just not doing it for me. I thought, all of these people, I know I'm a phony trying to look very spiritual now. Everybody else, I think, is we're all phonies. And I don't know about the teachers, if they know what they're talking about either. And it was really painful. And then I, um, I just, at some point, just said, I need to chill out. And I went to my little cubicle in this meditation center and just separated by curtains. It was a big dormitory that had curtains separating us. And uh, I was really, really having a hard time. And on my dresser was a picture of Neem Karoli Baba, who I just mentioned before, that uh, uh, guru from uh, Be Here Now. And he's looking up at me with a little twinkle in his eye, saying, hmm, getting a little freaked out, aren't we? <laughs> And in a moment, it, with his big smile, he always would make my heart open for a few moments, for well, more than a few moments, but it just broke the spell. And I thought, oh, wow, I just got caught in a morass, in, a, in, a, in a, 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 just a, a pile of muck, um, just this doubt. And I realized, oh, it's just doubt. That's what they keep on saying. One of the five hindrances. Oh, this is it. Oh, it's just doubt. And I got really excited because I couldn't wait to tell my teacher that I conquered doubt. <laughs> Unfortunately, my interview wasn't for another day and a half. And from that moment until I finally got to the interview, I went through a roller coaster of, yeah, I got it, to, oh, I lost it, oh, I cried, and I crashed, and I just, I went all over the map, and I went to, uh, to my interview with Joseph Goldstein, my teacher, and I said to him, I don't know. He said, what's happening? I said, completely innocent. And in complete exasperation and frustration, saying, it's always changing. <laughs> and he said, that's it. <laughs> and he actually points it, that's it. <laughs> oh, yeah, you keep on saying things. <laughs> oh, I got it. They really do change. I got an insight. Oh, how cool. 
And that's often how it happens that you don't even realize while you're going through it that you're learning something. And that bright faith becomes verified faith where nobody can take it away from you. And then as you keep on practicing, that verified faith matures and grows and turns into what's called unshakable faith. Where no matter what you go through, even if it's a challenging time, even if you're seeing stuff that you thought was uh, long gone or that you'd forgotten or, oh, wow, it's here again, you know you have the capacity to open up and to process that. And there's a tremendous kind of confidence that comes from that. If if the Buddha came, I sometimes, this might be blasphemous, but I, I think to myself, if the Buddha came magically and said, uh, James, you know that mindfulness stuff? I was just kidding. <laughs> it wouldn't matter. I know this works. No one can take that away. I'm just having a transmission right now with me. Because <laughs> we meet in that place. Now, trust and faith doesn't mean that it's all going to work out. You don't know how things are going to work out. But what the trust is, because it's all changing, but what the trust and faith is, is that your awareness can meet the moment when it comes. Not that, oh, it's going to be hunky-dory and, yeah, there's suffering. It's the first noble truth. There's suffering in life. But there's this confidence that your awareness has the capacity to meet the moment. And you can trust in that. Trust in the awareness. Not even, oh yes, James has it figured out. But just trusting that the awareness can meet it. And that is where that unshakable faith comes in. So, I'm a little bit behind. I'm going to get to five faculties. Don't worry. <laughs> but these first two are the, are the ones that I, that I really uh, wanted to share with you. So faith or trust in the process leads to the effort putting in the energy to be mindful. That's what the effort is. Not to be a super yogi, but just to be willing to show up. And that effort is a balanced effort. Sometimes effort is a big issue in practice, and sometimes we can be giving ourselves a report card by what our, by what our meditation looks like. Oh gosh, I've got a lot of... Uh, a lot of emotions uh, this retreat gosh you know just you know do I have to reach for the Kleenex again you know or sometimes I, I was on one of my earlier retreats everybody around was going through these big emotional releases catharsis and tissues everywhere and I was just sitting there watching my breath thinking, uh, what's going on here? You know, and I went running to Joseph saying, uh, I don't know if it's working. You know, I, everybody, I, I felt like everybody was getting their money's worth and I was just you know, in, out, big. <laughs> and he very wisely, as he often said, don't go looking for trouble. It will find you soon enough. <laughs> and it did, because that's part of the practice, that you're willing to see everything. But the effort is a balanced effort. You can have all kinds of ideas of what it should look like. Yes, if I'm doing it right, I'll be a hindrance-free yogi. You know, I used to think if I was, in my early days of practice, if I was really a good meditator, it would be like this giant vacuum cleaner would come and suck all the thoughts out and I'd just be blank. Don't wait for that to happen. The mind thinks. Sometimes it can get very quiet. 
It's absolutely true. But that's impermanent anyway. And you might be amazed to find that in the quiet there's thoughts underneath thoughts, underneath thoughts. There's whole levels of mental activity that are just kind of mind-blowing to explore. So let go of whatever your idea is of a great meditator and just be yourself. Just be authentically with what your process is. And as I say, it's a balanced kind of an effort. There's a, a famous story of um, this, this uh, monk in the time of the Buddha who was really trying hard and getting tighter and tighter and tighter. And he went to the Buddha and said, this is, there's something that's not working. And the Buddha said, oh, um, weren't you a musician before you became a monk? And the guy said, yeah, I, used to, I played the lute. And he said, well, what happened when you tuned the, the string of the lute too tight? He said, oh, it was too high a note. It, didn't, it was the wrong pitch. Okay. And what happened if it was too loose? Oh, no, it wasn't the right note. It was too low. And he said, just like that, my friend, in our practice, we can't be too tight and we can't be too loose. You have to find a balance where you can be with things alertly but relaxed. And so you need to find for yourself what is going to bring about a balance for where you're at because your energy changes all the time. Sometimes you might have bright energy in the morning or maybe you're not a morning person and you start to wake up like at 8 o'clock in the evening, okay? <laughs> So then you might be sitting in the evening later and finding your own, your own rhythm. But let go of the idea of what it's supposed to look like. On one retreat, I'll, I'll share with you a, a, a story of my own practice. I was very diligent in my earlier days. I really just turned up the jets and practiced, as it's sometimes said, practice like your hair is on fire, um, which can be very daunting or very inspiring. In those early days, it was inspiring for me, and I just really was going for every ounce of mindfulness. And I was doing the, the slow walking meditation, which I, I don't do much these days. I don't have the same kind of balance, but I was just crawling and just really enjoying it but in one of these longer retreats at some point instead of it being inspiring and uplifting it started to become very serious and very somber and although I was going slow it was like I was really in the movie Night of the Living Dead. <laughs> And it was not fun anymore. And at some point, I did that for a few days, and then I said, whoa, something's out of balance here. I need to take an unmindful walk. I'm going to play hooky. You have that expression here? It means like you're cutting out of class. You're, you're not going to class. I was going to just not be mindful. And I decided to put on my my uh, winter jacket and my my uh, boots. I hadn't been outside for like three weeks, and this is in New England. It was snowing everywhere, and I hadn't been out. And I was just going to have an unmindful, fun walk. I was so excited. <laughs> I'm not going to be mindful. So there. <laughs> left, right, left, right. <laughs> sniffling, hearing, left, right. Thinking, left, right. I couldn't stop. I couldn't turn it off. It was amazing. As soon as I just lightened up and relaxed and said, don't try so hard, it was all there. So rather than what it, you think it should look like, you're coming into balance 
And if you're finding yourself getting too tight, time to lighten up. If you find yourself getting too lax and laid back, well, if I'm mindful, I'm mindful. If I'm not, (laughs) watch out. Because this does take some effort and energy to get here. It doesn't happen by itself. It really means being willing to be here, and when you see you've gone, be willing to bring yourself back. That's it, basically. You're either here or you're not here, and when you're not here, to come back with a very loving, patient heart and begin again. But that takes commitment. The key to effort is sincerity. Rather than looking at what the results are, you just keep on getting in touch with your sincerity of heart that says, this is what I need to do right now that will help me be present. That's a guideline that I find helpful. Not so much, oh, what's the right thing to do, but this is what feels right that will help me come into balance, that will help me be present in a, in a way that's connecting, that will help me be relaxed, interested, with a kind heart. So it's all about sincerity, and I want to read to you uh, um, a note that somebody wrote to me on, on one retreat where he finally got this. He said, it is a, indeed a huge relief. I have this note from many years. I don't want to say the year. I never threw it away. It is indeed a huge relief to realize that I cannot, uh, that I am not in charge of my thoughts. Listen to this. That they come up completely unbidden. It is also a relief to know that I'm not in charge of my moments of awareness. That these are indeed just beautiful gifts. I think I've been laboring under the assumption that by sheer effort of will, I could manufacture awareness, and that the only reason it wasn't happening was because of laziness, weak brain power, lack of dedication, etc., etc. So this shift of emphasis towards faith and sincerity of heart, letting the process evolve at its own speed, in its own direction, has made me incredibly happy. Keep on getting in touch with your own sincerity, whatever it was that brought you here that calls you to do this stuff. That's your secret ingredient. And then whatever happens, you don't have to think that you've got to control the program. It's happening all on its own. Let's see if there's anything else there to share from that. Hmm. Here's uh, a Tibetan practice, a Tibetan teaching uh, by uh, a Lama Gendon Rinpoche. He says, Happiness cannot be found through great effort and willpower, but is already here in relaxation and letting go. Don't strain yourself. Only our searching for happiness prevents us from seeing it. Wanting to grasp the ungraspable, you exhaust yourself in vain. As soon as you relax this grasping, space is here, open, and inviting and comfortable. Hi, Tibetan teaching. I should tell you, though, that this these high teachings, this is from the uh, uh, Dzogchen um, uh, tradition, 
that uh, they tell you this after the preliminary practices. The preliminary practices happen to be 100,000 prostrations, 100,000 mantra recitations, 100,000 visualizations. You're doing a lot of work and then they finally say, relax. relax." So they both have their value. You can't just be so laid back. You really have to be willing to put your energy in, but it's a wholeheartedness, not a... It doesn't come from the head, it comes from the heart. So, the effort to be mindful leads to the third spiritual faculty, mindfulness, which you've been hearing about for probably as long as you've been doing this practice. Mindfulness is simply knowing what's happening right now without getting lost in your judgments or ideas about you, what you wish would be happening, to just see things clearly. <clears throat> and the Buddha, in his famous discourse, the Satipatthana Sutta, which is the basis of all Buddhist meditation, what we're doing here, he starts out that sutta by saying, there is one direct way to overcome sorrow, lamentation, and grief, despair, pain, anxiety, and realize the highest happiness. That is the establishment of mindfulness. That's pretty cool, isn't it? That Somehow he figured out if you just learn to be present for your life in a non-judging way and you keep on looking, life will reveal itself to you and have many, many byproducts of a loving heart, of wisdom, of very deep peace and of the highest freedom, what's called the sure heart's release. So this is why mindfulness is, um, is the essence of what we're teaching here, a kind awareness. And these days, we know the benefits of mindfulness. There's, it's taught in, in schools, it's taught in, uh, in health centers, there's loads and loads of research on the value of it. We see it every day. Actually, I don't know if you're, if perhaps you um, uh, read about, uh, I'm sure you heard about the Thai boys stuck in the cave. Anybody not, not know about that? Yeah. And maybe, I don't know if it, it's come out here, but they came out of that cave. People, the, the rescuers, were astonished at how calm they were. You know why? Because the coach, the 25-year-old coach, was teaching them mindfulness through the whole time they were there. Did you know that? Did you about yeah. that? And he had been a monk from the time he was 12 for 10 years. His pet, he was orphaned and he joined, became a monk, monastery. Then he had to go home. Uh, his grandmother became sick and he had to disrobe. And when he, while he was taking care of her, he, um, uh, he became uh, a coach. Uh, he loved working with, uh, with young boys and he became a coach and was a coach for the previous, for the last couple of years. But he meditated every day. He was a regular meditator and he said, there they were, trapped in the cave, and he said, we've got to stay calm. Time to learn mindfulness. I don't know if he used those words, but, he said, <laughs> but that's probably what he was thinking. And he taught them all mindfulness, and actually it said that before each, each rescue trip, uh, the, the boys that were going to be rescued uh, would sit with him for an hour. 
And then they, uh, they came out. But that's, that's how they were spending two weeks, just conserving their energy, finding center and balance, and there they were coming through the most amazing, incredible ordeal, balanced and calm and grateful. I sometimes think, wow, the rippling effect from that can be huge. The good karma that, of course, one person died, the, the one rescuer died, unfortunately, in, in one of the operations. But those kids getting through, every one of those kids is going to be an amazing inspiration. And mindfulness will once again come out into the culture saying, hey, this stuff is real. Now, mindfulness has a number of different lenses. Sometimes you might have a zoom lens and look very, very minutely at things. And sometimes it has a panoramic lens where you're just taking in the moment and feeling, oh, and here's sadness, or here's joy, or oh, here's confusion. Uh, sometimes it might be knowing that you are uh, putting your foot down or brushing your teeth and sometimes it might be knowing oh and here is a moment of joy so it looks lots of different ways it doesn't look any one way the basic principle is the same though knowing what's happening being clear about it and not getting lost in your ideas about what what should be happening and as we go through the um, the retreat will show you, uh, will present lots of different ways to be mindful and uh, know that any moment of mindfulness is just as good as any other moment. And there's, uh, before I move on, there's a, another thing I wanted to share with you uh, another letter about mindfulness. And this is from somebody on their very first retreat who was having a really hard time because she was trying to understand everything and and figure out why she was experiencing what she was experiencing and i kept on telling her as i might remind you you don't have to figure it out and finally at the end of the retreat she wrote me this note she says the one thing that is now indelibly in my brain is finally getting you don't have to figure it out. That would never have registered as an option before. Just today when I was doing walking meditation, struggling as my thoughts were going round and round, those words came into my mind, you don't have to figure it out. I stopped and closed my eyes and asked myself, what is true right now in this moment? And what was true was the rising and falling of my breath and various body sensations coming and going. And I thought to myself, the rest will balance itself out in its own time. And I resumed my walking what a revelation. You don't have to figure it out. Let go of trying to understand the process. It comes to you. And watch out for the word why. As in, why am I going through this? Why is this happening? Because that word will almost guarantee you to spin your wheels in trying to interpret and, and draw a conclusion. Just let it happen and you show up. So, mindfulness. There's a lot more I could say about it, but I'll just stop here. So, mindfulness, the, the faith or the trust to put in the effort to be mindful begets mindfulness. And mindfulness, moments of mindfulness, lead to the next faculty, 
that of concentration. It is actually possible to collect the attention and have moments of concentration build on each other and that is uh, a tremendously um, uh, uh, faith-inducing experience where you say, oh wow, it's really, really possible to be here. And so the concentration and all of these can lead to faith. It's kind of like a hologram. But I want to talk a little bit about concentration so you understand um, perhaps some ways that it works. Concentration really means the mind that can stick to an object. It can, and there's a few different ways that it can manifest. Sometimes we can focus on one particular object, like the breath, and have a very narrow focus, or like uh, metaphrases, or there, there's 40 different classical uh, concentration objects where the mind, you just keep on coming into that, that uh, object and staying with it, and the mind becomes very focused. You know, can be laser-like. You know, like light uh, doesn't seem very powerful, but you put it under a magnifying glass and it can start a fire, burn down a forest. Or if you focus the, that light in the right way, it can become a laser and cut through steel. In the same way, our minds can become very focused and have all kinds of um, unusual uh, capacities. Uh, but I just want you to know that the idea is not to become a super yogi concentrated and having these concentration states and they usually take some some time anyway uh, but concentration is a means to an end so that's one kind of concentration where if you had enough time to focus the mind over a period of weeks and months uh, it's really possible but there's another kind of concentration that is much more accessible that is just as liberating in fact, more liberating. And that is called moment-to-moment -moment concentration. The first one is, is a kind of absorption, samadhi, and the, this one is called kanaka samadhi, moment-to-moment -moment concentration, where instead of one particular object, you are focusing and connected to the present moment this moment and this moment and this moment and this moment and when you are you have a kind of momentum of mindfulness built up um, there is a tremendous um, uh, coming together collecting of the mind where it's fun it's actually fun to be here not always but but often it's like because when the mind becomes, when the mindfulness becomes strong enough and the, that momentum gets built up, then there's so much more that you see. And when there's, you can see much more, things become more interesting. And when they become more interesting, you want to pay more attention. And so it builds on itself. But, if the mindfulness is weak, things aren't so interesting, and we can be bored easily. Anybody bored today? I won't ask for a show of hands, but um, and when it, the mindfulness is weak, it's oh, you know, do I really have to pay attention to another breath? We just had one a moment ago. You know, what's the big deal? You know? But as it becomes more interesting, then the breath can be your whole world or just being here for one moment after another you're here for your life so the key to concentration if you get this you will really you'll know the secret the key to concentration 
is continuity. One moment after another after another. Not tight, not with any kind of rigidity, but you make it like a whole, like a dance through the day. This moment, and now this moment, and now this moment. The image that's often given is a tea kettle put on a stove. If you're putting a tea kettle on a stove and you want it to boil, if you take it off every 30 seconds, it's not going to do it, will it? Hmm. Let's see, is it boiled yet? No. Okay. Yeah, no. It's not going to cook. But you put that kettle on, even if sometimes the flame is low and sometimes it's higher, after a while it's going to cook. And in the same way, with that balance of effort, you just keep on showing up in a way that is not struggling, not tight, but just here. And that's how concentration will be developed. The first couple of days, you have to almost uh, fool yourself. Oh, this is really interesting. You know? But after a while, it is interesting. You keep on coming back, and as it gets stronger, and it just, and Joseph used to have this image of kind of like cranking up an engine. You know, you're turning it over, and all of a sudden, and you're off. Um, and it's a bit like that. So I really encourage you to just let every moment count. Joseph actually used to have this phrase. I, I, I loved it. I, I don't know if he still uses it. He used to call it um, um, accumulating NPMs. NPM stands for noticings per minute. And he said, just keep on cranking up the NPMs and, and, and you make it like a game. I made it like a game. Oh, how much of the time can I be here? How many NPMs can I have this, this, uh, this sitting? And sometimes my mind was all over the place. Not my problem, not my fault. I'm just knowing every single moment of mindfulness counts. So that's, uh, that's the secret. Along with patience, concentration takes patience and a relaxed mind. Because if you're too tight, it works against you. The mind gets agitated and it starts to rebel. So that's where I often say, make it like a game. Because when you make it like a game, it's more fun. Let's just see how mindful I can be. Let's just see if when I, when I see I've gone, oh, come on back. So relaxation and patience and continuity. And as the concentration builds, it leads to the fifth of these faculties, which is wisdom, which is really what the Buddha was teaching about. To wake up in a very profound way, not only waking up from our story, oh yes, this really did happen to me, and we have all kinds of insights liberating insights and understanding our own personal story, but also liberating insights and understanding some basic fundamental uh, principles of reality that free the mind. And I'll be speaking more about this in, in a further talk, but I'll just point to a couple of things right now. Basically, the deepest kind of liberating wisdom is seeing three things, any one of which is liberating. One, everything changes. Have you noticed that? Mm -hmm. Have you noticed how many thoughts have you had today? How many different moods have you had today? How many different body sensations have you had today? It's all continually changing. Impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, or dukkha, because everything is changing, holding on to changing experience is suffering. 
And that is where most of our suffering comes from. And so that's the second one. First one, impermanence, anicca. Second one, dukkha, unsatisfactoriness. And the third one, anatta, A-N-A-T-T-A in English, which is the selfless nature of reality, that we're not who we generally take ourselves to be. On the one hand, there is this person called James. On another, there's no nothing in this system that I can point to and say, that's me, that's fixed and unchanging. It is a continual flow of life. And that shift, seeing through the solidity of self, is tremendously liberating. Um, just uh, We're coming to the close now, but I just want to share with you a little exercise to point this out. So I'd like you to sit up and just check this out for a moment. We often think of ourselves as somebody to whom life is happening. In, in English grammar, we call this a noun. Somebody. A, a person, place, or a thing is a noun. And it's true. You are a noun. You are a person with a name. Okay. Now, and just go inside and first get in touch with your nounness, your body, the one to whom life is happening. And know that that's one reality. Now here's another one. Try this one on. Instead of thinking of yourself as a noun, think of yourself as a verb, as a field of activity in constant motion. There's the digestive system and the circulatory system and the nervous system and the thoughts and the moods and the sensations. And it's all happening all by itself. You are a verb. You are life flowing through this form called you. And instead of life happening to you, it's happening through you or as you. And here in this room, life is talking to itself through these various forms and knowing itself. You're a verb, as well as a noun. And when you more and more understand that perspective, you can open to the freedom that comes when you realize that you're not separate from anything. You are life. You can open your eyes if you like. This is what the Buddha was talking about. Seeing through this sense of self while honoring yourself, but seeing through this sense of self and seeing that perspective as well. Then you can lighten up and not take yourself quite so seriously. I'll come to a close with this passage that I love from um, Agnes, from Martha Graham, the great choreographer to Agnes de Mill, that points to this, both of these realities. She says, there is a vitality, a life force, a quickening that is translated through you into action. And since there's only one of you in all time, this expression is unique. If you block it, it will never exist through any other medium and will be lost. The world will not have it. 
It's not your business to determine how good it is nor how it compares with other expressions. It is your business to keep it yours clearly and directly and to keep the channel open. To keep the channel open. To let life keep on moving through you. Honoring your uniqueness but seeing it's not yours anyway. It's all a gift of life expressing itself as you. So this is the wisdom faculty and we'll talk about more of this as the retreat goes on. Five spiritual faculties, faith or trust leading to the effort or energy to be mindful, mindfulness building to a kind of concentrated presence which leads to seeing through the normal reality into a, a liberating wisdom, the five spiritual faculties. So let's sit for just a moment and let the words settle. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.